Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. For today's podcast, I have a special guest interviewer, Ray Noble. Ray is a medical doctor in the UK. He's a brother to Dennis Noble, who's leading a revolution in evolutionary biology. And in this interview, Ray talks to Jim McAllister. Jim is the archivist of the Lynn Margulis collection at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And he worked very closely with Lynn, who brought a lot of revolutionary and powerful ideas to science and fought a lot of resistance. This was originally broadcast on the Thin End podcast, which is hosted by Ray Noble. And you might want to go check that out. Here is the interview with Ray Noble and Jim McAllister. In this podcast, we continue our series of dialogues on evolution by discussing the contribution to our understanding of evolution by the late biologist Lynn Margulis. Lynn Margulis was a woman of outstanding achievement. She was more than a bit of a scientific rebel. To this end, we are joined today by Jim McAllister of the University of Massachusetts. Jim is an evolution geographer. And I think that description would have significance in our discussion today. Jim, welcome to The Thin End. Thank you, Ray. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Okay. Let's, let's start by um, telling our listeners who Lynn Margulis was and why her work is so significant to our understanding of evolution. What's her background? How did she get into science in the first place? Because she is quite a remarkable woman, isn't she? Yeah, she was a re- remarkable young lady and, and uh, went to the um, what was called the lab school of the University of uh, Chicago when she was 14. This wasn't the University of Chicago. It was a school that the university ran for young people coming into college. And um, one of the things that happened in that school was that they did science where they were encouraged to do their own work and get their own results and to see how that went. And from that experience, Lynn uh, developed a confidence in her own observations and her own measurements and that sort of thing. And I think that that uh, served her very well the rest of her life because she was certainly criticized enough it would make you question your own judgments unless you'd had some kind of background like that. Why and where did that criticism come from? What was she doing that produced so much controversy? Well, she didn't get into the controversial stuff until 1967 when she published her uh, paper on the origin of mitosing cells, which set forth the idea that mitochondria and chloroplasts and cells might have been free-living um, bacteria at some point that were incorporated into the cell. And this was uh, 
sorry, yes. I, no, no, what was it then about my? What was it about the mitosing cell? Because this is this is when the cell splits into two cells, and then and, right. Um, what what was it about the mitosis so much that gave her that uh, inclination to think that there was something about the organelles that were? Well, this these ideas were not new. They weren't her ideas alone. Um, the Russian symbiogenesist people, the Faminson and uh, Marashovsky, had developed these ideas um, back at the same time that Darwin was publishing on the origin of species. They they didn't care too much for the idea of natural selection as the as a a force that could create novelty. They said, well, it's an elimination process. How how does that work to give you the material with which to work mm. for toward new species, etc.? They believed that joining of usually microorganisms with uh, larger plants, animals, or fungi, or this process of symbiogenesis, symbiogenesis would be the way that this would be accomplished, that you'd get a whole new genome to work with. Uh, this is quite extraordinary. These are um, organisms essentially coming together in some way, or, be, yeah. or being incorporated, that provide a function for for the for the living organism. And we think about things as like in Greek mythology, satyrs and and uh, you know Pan and yeah. all of the various chimeric creatures. So it sounds very far-fetched, and I think that that's sort of the way it landed on the mainstream biologists at the time. Indeed, many of our listeners, because they've grown up with the concept of Darwinian evolution, that there is sort of random mutation in the genes and that these are somehow rather selected out, I think would find this concept, even though it's been around for a long time, quite extraordinary almost something out of science fiction that somehow or other you can incorporate other organisms and this is what actually generates a new form a new kind of species so how how did how did what was the contribution specifically then that lynn made to that idea well her, her paper is quite extensive and i think what she's trying to show there is that not only were there uh mitochondria and chloroplasts, but probably that the original cell merger uh, between something like an archaebacteria and a eubacteria. So what's the difference between those two things? Uh, I'm a geographer, so you... you got, <laughs> okay. Well, got a, bit of a barrel, there, there, are, there is a difference, and it was, it's mostly molecular. Yeah. Uh, the differences were discovered by Carl Woese, um, and... Uh, it's on the basis of the, the differences, I think, in some of the um, the way that the DNA is constituted, right, or wrapped, that uh, you get uh, archaea or archaebacteria on one side and eubacteria on the other. Yes. So she proposed that these two organisms had originally come together, two bacteria, to form the first protist or eukaryotic single-celled organisms. And the, and that was uh, part of that paper was on the origin of getting from bacteria, who, which do not mitose. They don't divide by mitosis. They just do binary fission. So 
from getting from those cells to some combination of those cells that now had motility, a cytoskeleton, a nucleus, and all of that stuff, probably a lot of it to organize DNA so that when the cell divided by mitosis, half of the material would go along with one daughter cell and one with the other daughter cell. I use the daughter generically. Yes, yes. And and where does the what was her line of evidence then? What was she working on that specifically from her point of because you mentioned the fact that she um was um uh, punctilious in a sense of in, in science in terms of evidence. Yes. But what did she consider to be the key line of evidence to demonstrate that that idea was correct? Well, she had been working with um, a lot of protists. These are very interesting, small, single-celled eukaryotes. Many of them have multiple nuclei, um, and some of the nuclei are free. They're not attached to the, uh, the undulopodium or the eukaryotic flagella, and some of them are attached to that so that you have a a, a nucleus, a nuclear connector, and then the and then the uh, organ of motility, the 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 eukaryotic flagella. Mm. Some of them just the just the nucleus is free and it's not attached to that. But it seems like the nucleus, the nuclear connector, and that um, that sperm tail, if you will, those three things formed. A structure which the early uh, protostologists called the karyomastodont, mm-hmm. and it, I think in in many ways it was looking at the, that structure, the nucleus, the nuclear connector, and that sperm tail, and thinking along the lines of what organism could would look like that that would merge with another bacteria. Right, and in her mind what what had happened was that a spirochete which is a a modal corkscrew like uh, bacteria had probably joined with a a, a wallless uh, thermoplasma or some other kind of archaebacteria I think Stephen Bell at, at Oxford during the homage to Darwin debate suggested to her that perhaps a cranarchaeota was a better right. choice than the one that she had was familiar with simply because her her only contact for that was Dennis Searcy, uh, a colleague who she'd known from graduate school, who also worked at the University of Massachusetts. So her collaborator essentially had an organism which, you know, since you're working with extent organisms and trying to sort of say, okay, this is a stand-in for something that existed two billion years ago, mm. uh, it's pretty obvious that no extent organism is going to really fit the bill. Yes. It's a proxy for... Mm. So she thought that spirochetes, uh, because spirochetes do form attachments with protists and push protists around, uh, she felt that this, it was kind of, uh, if this these two things merged, you could, you could repurpose all of those motility proteins etc to do the cytoskeleton to do the nuclear connector to i suppose in a sense that at um, the earliest stages of evolution 
this kind of coming together and fusing would have been going on in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Some would be successful and others wouldn't. Yeah, and I think, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems to me that the earlier you get in the history of life, the more common ancestry you have with every other thing that's alive on the planet so that your chances of hybridizing with mm. other things even uh things that were a little bit different from you stood a much better chance as we go down through time and things tend to diverge i think the chances of those kinds of hybrids uh lessen somewhat plus the fact you had a very very long stretch of very um at least in the isotope record uh what's called the boring billions you have a very steady state of the of the earth for a long time and this unperturbed environment may have been the breeding you know may have led to these mergers where in a more changing world later on yes this kind of merger would not happen or would not happen. it's sort of stabilized right yeah so she produced her paper and what was the consequence of that? How was this received? Well, uh, I guess a good indication of how it was received was that it was rejected by more than a dozen journals before she finally got the Journal of Theoretical Biology to publish it. And what she'd been told was that the way to uh, get around being published in a non-prestigious journal was to simply make many, many reprints of your article and distribute them yourself to everybody that you wanted or you thought would be interested so that was a that was a tactic that that lynn used her entire career because she never had a particularly easy time getting mm. papers published mm. that occurred through through her career essentially yes that, that she had difficulty did she have difficulty yeah. getting funding because one of the essential ingredients of research is that you get some funding to do it. Did she have difficulty getting funding? She had a lot of difficulty getting funding. Uh, early on, when she was a primary uh, investigator for NASA, and she was instrumental in things like their astrobiology program and the uh, um, planetary biology internship program that they have for graduate students, um, she was instrumental in getting NASA to realize that they could study Earth the way that they might study a planet like Mars. That sounds a little funny, but almost all of the biology budget in NASA in the early years was going to monitor the health of astronauts. It wasn't going to study the planet from space. Yes, uh, they wouldn't be looking to see whether a planet was living or not. It was right. simply concentrating on trying to put something living onto it. Right. And now we've got uh, better ideas about what we might be looking for on other planets uh, to see whether there would be life there. That's extraordinary because that indicates that she, if she got to that position, she must therefore at some stage have gained acknowledgement for what she was doing. Well, she won a lot of prizes and whatnot, but over the years at NASA, when the people that she knew and knew well left and were, uh, you know, promoted upstairs and that sort of thing, and new people came in in the funding departments, uh, she lost her NASA funding. Really? 
never really had any other, she never had an NIH grant or she never had money from the National Science Foundation. Um, she had a handful of very generous donors and backers who uh, funded her through small private uh, foundations. And she also won quite a few science prizes. So that money, that money from those donors and and from those prizes were were what her income was other than her salary at the University of Massachusetts. And then she began doing uh, lectures around the world because there was a demand for that. And so her lecture fees also helped her do research and run her lab. Yes, yes. Was a lot of her work theoretical or was it very practical? Whenever she could, she was at the microscope. She was... Yes. Uh, she was. She loved nothing more than to look at the organisms and study them. Mm. Uh, so she did do a lot of whole organism kinds of biology uh, and research with her uh, her lab partner, who was Michael Dolan, uh, another protistologist. Right, right, right. So um, now you came. You you came. Jim, I was going to let me just answer the yes. The, Certainly, certainly a, a good deal of her work was also theoretical. Yes. And she worked with a lot of colleagues on the various theories that she had. Um, because she also worked on the Gaia hypothesis as well, didn't she? She, she worked with Lovelace and on that, developing the idea that the planet is a living uh, organism, as it were. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, Jim Lovelock had developed his... Um, his hypothesis about Gaia when he was working at NASA, they were both primary investigators with NASA. Uh, he had published on Gaia a few times before. Um, finally, he, when he was asking Carl Sagan who might know about the origins of some of these gases, etc., cetera, uh, Carl Sagan said, uh, you know, you really should, you and, and Lynn Margulis should really get together and talk about this. And I think they instantly hit it off because I don't think he had found anyone that was as good at recognizing the kinds of microbial underpinnings that you could have for all of this physiology on the planet's surface. Yep. I don't think I don't think even most people really were aware in the sense that it was a was something that was really people were really conscious of that the majority of biota on the planet is actually microbial. That something like ninety nine percent of the biota on the planet is microbial in nature. So uh, until you started thinking along the lines of what microbes could be doing, uh, you weren't going to be able to figure out why life was affecting the planet. Yes, if you're really going to understand what's happening to the planet, you've really got to understand what's happening at the microbial level. Uh, right. Certainly, certainly the case. Right. So she... So she, she, she contributed to this understanding of uh, evolution in terms of symbiosis. How has that idea developed, do you think, in relation to our current concepts of, of evolution? Is that now something that's becoming accepted or is it still resisted? You're asking about symbi symbiosis. symbiosis. And symb yes, we'll come back to the guy in, in a yeah. short while. Because I, I think that the two kind of relate to each other in, in a way, and we'll come back to that in a yes. short while. Uh well, I believe that now symbiosis is basically recognized as pretty much the rule rather than the exception. Uh, 
it's certainly not Lynn and the Russian, uh, her illustrious predecessors, as she called them, they would have all said that symbiosis was the mm. major source of novelty. And it it may be the major source of novelty, but it's not the exclusive source of novelty. Um, even random mutation probably has something to contribute, but it's certainly a lot less than uh, it was credited with with the the ideas of behind the modern synthesis. Mm. Uh, I think now it's it's much more easy to see that with gene sequencing and stuff that there's an awful lot of microbial, even viral. Uh, stretches of, of DNA in the human genome and other genomes. So it's a lot more plausible, I think, to everybody that those things came through a symbi- symbiosis or symbiogenesis kind of process. We're beginning to move to understanding evolution as a multi-mechanistic process rather than just simply one kind of way of doing it, which is the sort of neo-Darwinian way, which is that everything has to be centered on the genes, that there's random mutation going on in the genes. Sometimes these are beneficial, sometimes they're harmful, and that somehow or other the environment um, weeds the uh, unsuccessful ones out like a little sieve of some kind. You know, the good ones pass through the holes and the bad ones (laughs) stay behind and so on. Um, And the, the sort of survival of the fittest in terms of these tiny random mutations. One of the difficulties I think that many of us have with that is that when we look at the functional system, the organism, it's actually pretty well equipped itself to control bad mutation as a functional entity. So it's very, very difficult to find from that ways in which you can get what you refer to, which is novelty. Because the population, as it were, absorbs the random mutations. You'd have to have something that would separate out um, a group from the population, which would then, as it were, hive off into a a new form, a new species. So it's typically difficult, it seems to me, to get speciation from um, random mutation. And that always, for me, was always the difficulty with random mutation. Whereas with, with many of these other mechanisms such as symbiosis, some uh, um, symbiotic uh, processes that bring different forms together to create new forms, which might have made a large contribution in the early stages of evolution, but also reformation within the system itself. And when you look at organisms, you find reformation of the organism in various ways. Metamorphosis, for example, is a reorganization of the system. So the capacity to reorganize the system, as it were, can be found in many organisms. Uh, And at the stage in which the system is developing, changing, it also becomes susceptible to environmental influences. So it doesn't just simply change within a bubble. It changes in a way which itself is adaptive uh, to the environment in which it's going to live. We see it's a, it's a simple thing, really. We see this, don't we, in tadpoles and frogs. Um, I mean, which you, as a child, one, you know, to me was extraordinary. But we see it all over the place. We see it in butterflies and moths and so on and caterpillars and so on. These appear to be completely different 
forms. If you didn't know that one transformed into another, you'd think, well, you know, this, this, these were different species. Um, but because we do know that that happens, we recognise that they are the same species. But sometimes, of course, you can get a situation where that um, metamorphosis halts at the stage and that simply is now the organism because some environmental influence in, uh, uh, has, has made that happen. And so there's another way in which change of form and function can occur and hive off into separate species. Behaviour is another um, part of our environment is behavioural, is social. Um, and so um, we're going to be continuously transmitting information about our social environment to our offspring and they to their offspring and them to their offspring and so on, transgenerationally. So there's another mechanism that can be used in an evolutionary sense to create different ways of behaving. Different ways of behaving create different um, forms and so on. And um, then, of course, there's, you know, complete reorganization. You can take bits of the genome and transplanted into other bits of the genome and we know that that has been occurring the transposition of, of genes has been occurring in evolution so i go back to that thing then that really what we're dealing with here is evolution is a multi-mechanistic process not simply one way route to evolution which is this random mutation uh, and and selection by by the environment now that brings me round to this you don't see it as being by the environment do you because there's no real separation is there between as it were the organism and the environment they're all part of the same interactive process yeah when you when you think about it part of life is is the fact that all cells have to couple with their environment and they have to remain coupled all the time in order to maintain metabolism. They've got to be getting energy and matter from the environment constantly and they've got to be gener generating and, and getting rid of waste uh, into the environment. So they not only do they change the environment by pulling things out of the environment, they also add things to the environment that changes the environment. So the organism and the environment are constantly changing in relation to one another, and all cells are able to sense their environment and react in ways that allow them to maintain that, that, that bond with the environment that they need for metabolism. It's very um, odd then that in, in that in, in, if we take the modern synthesis, which is this neo-Darwinian view of sort of random mutation, the one thing that it will not treat organically is evolution, because evolution is an organic process. Yes, it, it, you know, and it, it's almost as if what they're doing is sort of separating out the one aspect that creates new forms and new species and so on as being somehow rather different from the physiological function. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was very interesting in the homage to Dar Darwin debate, um, Martin Brazier went on quite a little speech about the fact that uh, when they were laying the transatlantic cable, they were finding, because they needed to find out what the bottom of the ocean was like, what they found the bottom of the ocean to be like was basically to be very deeply layered in foraminiferal ooze, basically the shells of these little single-celled protists that are uh, marine protists. And uh, at the end of saying that there's so many 
you know, that all over the world, the bottom of the ocean is covered with, with many, many feet of this ooze, which then gets compacted and made into limestone, etc. Uh, I think Richard Dawkins said, well, that's probably important, but it has nothing to do with speciation. So, you know, only, only with a reductionist view could you, could you isolate speciation as being sort of the end-all, be-all of evolution. Uh, when it, it's very telling that Richard Dawkins and other people that developed the modern synthesis, they were basically they were zoologists and physicists and statisticians, and they had a very animal-centric model of of evolution. Mm. They left out seven eighths of the development of life on Earth because animals didn't appear until the last eighth of the time that the earth has been around with life on it. And of course to them, speciation is important because animals, that's something animals do. Yeah. But in the, but in the microcosmos and even in protists, um, things don't have animal type sex and they don't necessarily reproduce in, in a sexual way. Then in fact, majority of them they're asexual and in bacteria now even with dna sequencing most i think the the most uh current thought is that you can't really put the word species on bacteria it just doesn't really apply mm. Uh, mm. none of the various definitions for speciation really fit bacteria so the majority of the biota on the planet don't even come in species so yes. Yes, 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 indeed. That's fascinating. Now, I'm going to go back and ask you this question, because um, at, at some stage you started working with Lynn Margulis. Tell me how that came about, because your, you, you, your field is geography, isn't it? Geology and geography. Is that right? Well, that's my field, but that's the field that I, that I was educated in after I met Lynn, because she basically said, if I'm going to be teaching you all this stuff, you really should go back to school and get a degree, <laughs> which I did. Uh, I, I got to know her originally really by accident. Uh, she was having trouble with her editing uh, system, uh, not producing any sound, uh, and uh, had spoken to my former business partner who was living in Amherst. And when I came out to visit him, he said, would you mind going over to Lynn Margulis's house and look at her? Her, uh, her editing system to see if you can get the sound to work. And uh, I did, and I, you know, I, I was successful in getting sound to work, but then she was showing me things that she was doing. I had, I had no idea who Lynn Margulis even was at right. the time. I, right. I, was a, I was a writer and director of what we call in America commercial or industrial videos, mostly in the fields of science and medicine. And, uh, but I had, I had really, I had never, I had never heard of Lynn Margulis before, before meeting her. Um, I started working with her and basically it was because she, there were things that she wanted to do editing wise that she didn't really have the skill set for. So I started doing editing for her. Then she had an animation that the Canadian broadcasting system had done for her, which was very crude and she wanted something better done that would would sort of extrapolate this whole idea of mitosing the origin of mitosing cells, mm. and uh, so I started working on a animation for her, 
And uh, then she just continued to find other things for me to do. I was actually looking to change my um, career. I kind of was burned out on what I was doing. I'd been doing it for 30 years. Goodness. So I was looking for something else. So I was very happy to, uh, to find Lynn and to be hired by the lab first as a contractor. And then later on when I actually was enrolled at the university, I began working for Lynn as a teaching assistant. So um, I did my work for her in that capacity. But now you, you, you continue to work with the, the Lynn Margulis archives and so on. What do you do exactly now in relation to Lynn Margulis? Because you, you, you're now publishing and uh, developing papers and chapters of books and so on on this area. So you clearly got right into the um, track, as it were. Um, well, what Lynn had me do as part of my job, I was some of the time I was manufacturing new teaching materials for her. Some of the time I was taking her old teaching materials that might have been based in slides and audio tape and making them into DVDs, uh, just so that to keep the uh, to keep these materials current to the kind of technology that was around. Mm. And the other thing that she had me do was she had started having me digitize everything in in her papers, in her lab, in her um, research library of videotapes. She had 500 uh, video cassettes of research footage through microscopes of various phenomena. So I started digitizing all the material. And um, I did not know this. Uh, Lynn, Lynn's mother had died from the same thing that eventually ended up happening to Lynn, a cerebral hemorrhage. And Lynn really felt like she was living on borrowed time. Now, mm. this was strangely, I knew her for 10 years, and she would say things like, you know, uh, when I die, I want you to do this or that. And I would always sort of jokingly say, well, you're not planning on dying. Mm. I mean, Lynn was very vigorous. She was a, 70, a very young 70-year-old who swam every day, bicycled to and from work. Uh, and took good care of herself, except for maybe the fact that she didn't probably sleep enough. But um, I never, I never realized that she really might be living on borrowed time. She never right. sort of. She died in two thousand eleven. Is that right? Right. So I think part of what she wanted to do was she wanted to leave a legacy of material that was readily accessible, and that's why she was having me digitize all of this mm. material that having to do necessarily with teaching. I, I ended up with 38 hard drives full of material. Um, and when Lynn passed away, that material plus material that I then, over the year that it took us to close the lab down, we tried to digitize all of the rest of the material that I hadn't digitized. I, I didn't do all of it. There were, there's a Lynn had a huge collection of uh, electron micrographs, etc., right. that I, I never was able to scan. Um, Sounds to me as if she was an extraordinarily methodical person. Is that she was? Yes, she was. Her 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 office was full of file cabinets, lateral files with everything, and filed all filed away very neatly. She hired. Um, people in the summer that helped her organize everything that had happened in the past academic year. Um, so I think she had a very strong inkling that she was going to have a legacy and she wanted it preserved. 
Yes, yes. So that's basically what I did. He probably uh, also felt that this was going to be something important, that, you know, that the, the, the debate at some stage would reopen. Because in uh, many ways, the debate kind of closed off a bit, didn't it? That people, people dug trenches and, uh, and they still try to stay in their trenches, that, you know, resist change in ideas. Did she have a feeling that that was the case or...? I think she had a feeling, and and I did too, that there was really kind of a wave cresting of mm. where her ideas were going to be accepted. I mean, things like the microbiome had been had been recognized by other people. I mean, Lynn was talking about the microbiome in 1980. I think that's probably at least two decades before anybody else uh, thought about microbiomes. Um, so I think she she knew that she would have. Um, well, I have to. You'll have to give me that question again, Ray. I'm sorry. I've yeah, I, I was really no. That's okay. I I was really um, interested in how she saw what she was doing in relation to posterity and um, a change in the way we viewed things like evolution or the way we viewed life on earth and so on whether she was you know was she anxious that 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 the that you know all these archives are made in order that that would be available in order to help change our view of evolution and life on earth yeah i think so and i think that she recognized that as she went around the world doing her lectures uh, when she went to Oxford as a as a visiting professor um, and met your brother and met Martin Brazier and other people there, I think she began to realize that there was there were more and more people joining her in thinking that the it was time that a a new paradigm took over. Yes. Uh, yes. She'd, she'd already been in touch with James uh, Shapiro and other people mm. that. And they were publishing on these ideas, um, so I, I think she saw. I think she saw it coming. I think she felt she was right, and that she was going to be. Uh, Is vindicated too strong because she yeah. had to be tenacious um, in those early years, in particular. I mean, you know, here she was. She was a woman, for one thing. Uh, exceptional woman, by all accounts. Highly intelligent. Yeah. Um, clearly uh, an amazing scholar, very methodical, a fantastic laboratory-based scientist as well. Yeah. She, um, she knew how to do science. She was a scientist. Yeah. But she, at that time, you go back to the 1950s, 60s, uh, it's very much a man's world. So, so yeah. she's not, so not, only, not only did she overcome that, but she was also insistent on continuing to work on what she believed to be the right path that took an enormous amount of courage actually because of course you know that meant it was difficult to get funding that meant it was difficult to get her papers published that meant that her career path would have been much much more difficult because she stuck to her guns on that that's quite a tenacious woman did you did she appear tenacious to you when you worked with her it was she was tenacious she was combative and she was uh, confident and uh, I think that she was probably very lucky that she met Carl Sagan I mean she was married to Carl when she was 19 years old 
I think he had a lot to do with um, making her feel comfortable in science. Uh, he may have even had something to do with having her decide that she could hold her own with the boys. Right. And uh, she didn't have to play the woman card. I mean, one of the things that she always said was, and and one thing that I certainly observed was that she never she never played on the fact that she was a woman. Um, obviously she knew that she was, but, uh, yes. she was, she was not playing the, that uh, card. No, no, no. I mean, she was the scientist. She was the scholar. Right. Yeah. And I think she was just confident enough in her own intellectual ability hmm. that she really felt she could hold her own with the boys. And on several occasions, either someone would come to her house very often. If someone came to visit her, she would put them up in a guest room in her house and uh, if they were visiting the lab or something. And uh, I can remember a few different instances where where I would talk to a male scientist who had been visiting Lynn and uh, where they said, boy, I really didn't think I was going to be as impressed or learn as much as, as essentially as I have from her, you know, so... I think she she was a very impressive person. Yes. But more and more people are now discovering about Lynn Margulis. That's true as well, isn't it? There's a, a, a growing interest in what she achieved and what she was um, telling us. Yeah, I think there is. I think there's a lot more people probably reading her work now uh, after, her, after her death. She's always had a fairly um, devoted following mm -hmm. of readers. Uh, but I think that probably has grown some. Do you see your role as being, as it were, carrying the torch? How do you see your role in all this? Because I know that, I mean, do you, <clears throat> and the reason why I'm asking that is I'm interested in whether you um, are trying to, as it were, extend this understanding. Do you see your role as an educational sense or how do you see your role in this? Well, I always saw my role, even even when I was working for Lynn, as part partly as this person who was documenting her and documenting her work and and digitizing it and organizing it and that sort of thing. But another part of me really, I really felt like I was her publicity agent. Yes, her public relations person. Uh, my background: I grew up on a farm in New Hampshire, and uh, where we raised uh, beef cattle <laughs> and pigs and chickens and lots of other things. And uh, I don't know if it's that farm background or not, but the more I heard of Lynn's ideas, the more they just seemed intuitively right. I mean, uh, the more I became a student of biology and, and other fields, the more I was convinced they were right. But even initially, just my intuition was, why is there such a resistance to these ideas. These ideas just sound totally plausible. I mean, they don't sound like something that is crazy or outrageous. No. Are these ideas getting to students now more than they were, do you think? I'm just thinking back to when, see, I, I originally trained as a zoologist. And... Um, and so did Lynn. <laughs> well, Lynn was a 
back in the yeah. 1970s and and um i went to university a little bit late actually and um i i uh when i went to university as an undergraduate it was they were just they were beginning to teach the modern synthesis essentially and um i hated it uh i i was one of the students in a sense who found it such a poor understanding of functionality and life and um i suppose in a sense I, i'd come from a sort of a, a sort of political background in a sense and um to me the sort of consequences of uh defining life by you know a set of molecules you know the idea that a gene was in any way a code or a blueprint that controlled things um was to me an extraordinarily poor approach to understanding function because it it left out function it left out purpose of an organism and what i mean by purpose and organism of course is the way it functions in its environment it's interacted with what you were referring to jim that that it's not separate from its environment and there's a there's a close relationship between um uh, an organism and its niche it's both making it its niche and the niche is making it they are interacting yes. it's almost as if we've somehow rather compartmentalized these things uh and um i always when i was a student in 1970 I, I i always rebelled against that but i was being taught even before richard dawkins book the selfish gene came out we were being taught the selfish gene yeah it was seeping in so my question to you in a sense is do you get any sense that there is a change going on in undergraduate teaching that students coming through might now be more open to a better understanding of um how genes work within the body and how the systems operate do you do you get are you hopeful that that's the case or i'm hopeful that it will become the case i i'm i'm a little less hopeful about what the state is right now because mm. when i see references to evolution in popular culture for instance in the hbo's westworld series or or the current genius with stephen hawking series that's on pbs right now or the remake of the cosmos series the 2014 remake with uh, neil degrasse tyson Mm. What you get in all of those popular science or science fiction but there's a certain element of science and the science that you get that surrounds evolution is all the modern synthesis yeah. and it's not it's not the modern synthesis with new trends it's the modern synthesis period it's it's the selfish gene yes uh and no no other none of the things that were originally excluded that now people talk about being included none of those are are visible in any of those places they're they're giving you the straight modern synthetic view yes and these are these are currently being broadcast to the general public uh including other scientists from other fields that are not evolutionary biologists there's no reason that a geologist is going to know mm. that evolution has changed mm. if they're watching popular culture things and the references all seem to be saying oh yeah that's what i learned in school when i went to yes 
on biology course 40 years ago. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, it's going to take time, isn't it? I think for the mainstream media to catch up with these changes. Well, I think this is the reason why that meeting at the Royal Society, the joint meeting of the Royal Society and the British Academy was yes. uh, one of the things I think that was sort of disappointing about that was I don't think that the people who are there supposedly being the proponents of the modern synthesis, not even, even they don't, even they know the modern synthesis is passe. Mm. Uh, I got a letter from, um, actually, before that meeting happened, uh, Kevin Leyland and and uh, and his colleagues and the colleagues of Douglas Fatuma mm-hmm. had already had a point counterpoint in Nature, where they had argued this point, this idea of do, do we need an is there a new paradigm? Do we need a new paradigm? Do we yes, need a new name? Yes. And I actually thought that one of the things that was a, a sort of a glaring omission in in both that nature comment and also at the Royal Society British Academy meeting was that there was no statement of what was it that we were debating. In other words, there was no never any definitive statement of what is the modern synthesis currently mm. that you're supporting. I mean, you say you're supporting the modern synthesis, but you say... It's obviously, when you say it incorporates all these other things, you're not talking about the original modern synthesis. So what, can we get a definitive statement of what theory are we talking about? Yes. That, that, that whole definitive statement was just missing, and it was missing in both these things. So I wrote to uh, Greg Ray, one of the authors of the comment, who had authored the Douglas Fatuma point of view, the proponent of modern synthesis. And basically the answer that he gave me I thought was extraordinary because it misuses the idea of the the term theory completely. He says we weren't really using theory to talk about a theory. We're using the word theory to talk about everything that's happening in evolutionary biology that people discuss. Well, I mean, that to me strikes me as a subterfuge of I mean, it may be a good way to win a debate by keeping what you're talking about very mysterious and vague, but it's not very scientific. Mm. And using the word theory, which has a very, very precise meaning in science, yes, to mean something totally it's an extreme, other, extremely slippery um, approach. Yeah. That 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 uh, and and it, it does make it does make discussion and debate difficult because it's unless I mean the one thing you, you always try and do and I think you're absolutely right on this the one thing that you normally do when you're having a, a discussion that's going to be fruitful is to decide what the precise positions are um, you know that what is it that we differ on. Precisely. You know, and what is it we agree on? Then what is it we di- we differ on? So that we can discuss that. So that we can move forward with it. What do right. we need to do? For example, it always struck me from that Royal Society meeting that um, it was vitally important that these 
new ideas. They're not new ideas, of course. That's one of the things that they say, that the modern synthesis people say these are not new ideas, but they've been ignored. <laughs> they've been ignored. And if they're not ignored, what it does is to change your experimental approach. It changes the way in which you will test something. Um, you, you can't exclude these ideas unless you're looking to see whether they have any credibility. If you totally ignore them, uh, you're never going to set up a, an experimental paradigm which will search for evidence to suggest that they are or not uh, there. You're always going to be interpreting what happens in the particular way in which you interpret the world. You're going to continue to look through the same window, regardless of the fact that you know there are other windows. And I thought, I mean, to, I think that was one of the most disappointing aspects of the Royal Society meeting, actually, that um, it was it was fantastic that it, it was a coming together uh, of a, a number of people working in a whole variety of different disciplines and areas to do with evolution and bringing it all together the cultural side of it, looking at cultural evolution, the, the symbiogenesis side of it, uh, the, the transpositional side of it, and so on, and the physiological functional side of it, and so on. It was a, a, a beautiful occasion from that point of view. And this would have been a wonderful opportunity for those that would adhere to the modern synthesis to really tell us what it was precisely <laughs> that they yeah. found difficult with some of these ideas. I think the I think the other thing that they they themselves miss is the fact that by keeping this name by keeping the the name neo darwinism or keeping the name modern synthesis they're doing students and the general public a great disservice because the, there's no way f without a signpost that says hey there's a new game in town you know and this is not to throw out everything that the modern synthesis has done. I mean, all theories augment the theories that came before them. I mean, this is not dissing the modern synthesis and, and all of the research that's come out of that approach. But until you have a signpost that says, people, we've got a new game in town, there's more than just random mutation. Mm. There is symbiogenesis. There is hybridization, there is transposable elements. Until you do that, the majority of people, including students coming into the field, are, are not going to know about it. One of the things I've noticed, which I find very peculiar, is that biology seems to be enamored of having these anachronistic, uh, misleading uh, uh, terminology that they that they just it, it's like they love it because it's it's part of the priesthood it's part of being in the discipline is that you you aren't you aren't fooled by the fact that we're using the same word for the motility structure on bacteria and we're using that same word to describe the motility structure on eukaryotes even though those two motility structures have nothing nothing whatsoever to do with each other. One is one protein, one is over 600 proteins, one is, I think it's uh, six point sixteen micrometers, and the other, the, just the microtubules within the cilia are 25 mm. uh, microns, you know, uh, it's, 
it, it's just extraordinary that biology and and of course the other thing that's extraordinary about, about biology I think is that physicists sort of invaded biology but the one thing they didn't bring with them was relativity yes yes which Dennis has pointed out yes, your brother exactly. uh, yes yes and and it's just interesting that this seems to be a discipline that is more prone to like loving its old and outmoded terms than any other and I wondered if that isn't part of this problem with getting a name change. Yes, yes. I think that's right, Jim. And uh, with that, I'm going to thank you very much for joining us on The Thin End. been a very interesting, fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you very much. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0